This is Gulf Coast Live. I'm Julie Glenn. May is National Foster Care Month. So later this hour, we're going to listen back to a conversation that we had with the owners of a local restaurant that's menu is based on meals one of the owners grew to love during his 12 years as a foster child. But first, Florida has long ranked at or near the bottom when it comes to spending for state-managed mental health programs. And while the lack of available mental health services for people of all ages is a statewide problem, it's particularly acute here in Southwest Florida. In Lee, Collier, and Charlotte counties, there is roughly one mental health provider per 1,000 residents. And that's compared to the state average of about one in 670 people. Add to that shortage the dramatic increase in the number of children who are experiencing anxiety, depression, and who are self-harming and threatening or attempting suicide. We have a serious mental health problem on our hands, and it's only getting worse. On today's show, we're joined by two reporters for the News Press and USA Today Network to talk about their feature story that was published in yesterday's edition of the paper. Janine Zeitlin is a storyteller for the News Press. Janine, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to see you again. And also, Frank Gluck, he's a healthcare watchdog reporter. Frank, welcome to Gulf Coast Live. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks for having me. And as always, we want to hear from you. Have you or someone you know struggled to find mental health services for a young family member? The number to call is 877-428-8255. That's 877-GCU-TALK. On Facebook, we're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. Before we get into the numbers, guys, uh, I want to ask about the teenager from LaBelle, the person that you profiled. How did you get connected with this young person? Well, we put out uh, several months ago a call um, on social media asking for people who would be willing to share their stories. And it was basically a word of mouth kind of introduction. So it wasn't, um, the mother did not directly respond to that, but somebody knew her and mm-hmm. introduced us to her. And then consequently, she we got to know her a little bit and then she introduced us to her daughter. So it was definitely a warming up period until she was comfortable with even introducing us to her daughter. And then with having her daughter be interviewed. It really is difficult to mm-hmm. gain that trust, um, but it's important to do because these are stories that are kind of hard to get a hold of. There are a lot of things that you have to, that, that kind of block us from knowing what's going on with young people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the, they're minors, and then there's also HIPAA, and we're talking about mental health. So when she felt comfortable enough to talk with you, what kind of things did you learn from her? Can you tell us a little bit about her story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, Okay. Uh, basically, um, she had um, for several years struggled with depression and had started to um, cut herself. And she had attempted suicide about three times. Um, and finally, it got to the point where she told her parents what was happening. Her so her parents didn't realize that she had tried to do this? No. She would, she would always cover up with long sleeves with hair ties around her wrist so they wouldn't see her see her injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so she kept it concealed for, for a very long time. And she talked a lot about uh, just the, the whole subject of mental health is uh, kind of an uncomfortable subject for the family, which I, I thought was interesting because it's a very loving family and they, they obviously care very deeply mm-hmm. about the girl. But it was something she felt very uncomfortable talking to her mother and father about. And uh, I mean, for she went for years kind of struggling with this before it finally came out in the open. Yeah. And it was actually during the interview process, it was actually pretty interesting. Um, 
she we, we, we started to ask her about her story and she kind of froze um, when we started to ask for details. And her mother sensed that she wasn't comfor- comfortable talking about what happened with them in the room. So even though, so they, her parents just made them scarce for a little bit. She was so ashamed about the feelings that she was having that she wasn't even comfortable sharing those feelings in front of them, but she was comfortable enough with us strangers. Yeah, you can kind of recount things, you know, as mm-hmm. here is a fact that happened as opposed to how it actually feels yeah. that that happened, right? So I can see that. Mm-hmm. How old is this person? 16. She's 16. I so think she's 17 now, but she, she was, was having issues at the time. like a couple years ago then, it mm-hmm. sounds like. Mm-hmm. So this began and, and then it kind of flew under the radar because it was just hard for her to talk about that in front of her parents, even though she knew that her parents would care for her and support her. Yeah, I, I think it was a slow build for her, too, because I, th- I believe she talked about this kind of starting in her adolescence, mm-hmm. which is not surprising, I guess, and mm-hmm. then just slowly building and building and things happening to her in her life that, you know, she just kind of kept to herself and it just got worse and ultimately progressed to the cutting and then the thoughts of suicide. Um, but this was a, it was a slow build and, and she just, you know. And put on a brave face and just Basically, decided she yeah. was going to power through and she could handle it. And that's a lot of people kind of do that. Yeah. But then when she went to go find help, what happened? Did she, Was she able to find anything? Well, I mean, so she told her parents about um, wanting to kill herself and trying to kill herself. Um, and, you know, so they went to the hospital, they, you know, went to the emergency room, had her checked out um, just to make sure her injuries were okay. She hadn't didn't have, cause any other damage to herself. But that's kind of where the trouble started in a sense. Because so the hospital then decided, well, okay, you need to be evaluated by a, a psychiatrist, a mental health professional uh, under the Baker Act. Um, the problem was there, there was no place for her to go locally. And that's Lee County. That's Collier County. That's Charlotte County. And in fact, they looked all throughout South Florida, yeah, I believe. Even Miami area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took three days before she was finally able to find a spot up in uh, Bradenton. So did they check her into the hospital? She just had to hang around there? Basically, yeah. She just had to kind of hang around there. They had a volunteer watcher to make sure she was staying safe. Now, her family was with her pretty much, I think, 24-7. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had to have someone in the room watching her. Um, so it was a lot of sitting in bed watching TV, yeah. waiting for word that there was a place for her. And her mother was very surprised that there was no real psychiatric evaluation during that waiting uh, period. But essentially, she they're just sitting around waiting for the psychiatric care. Yeah, the ERs really aren't equipped for that. Yeah, but I'm sitting, I mean, we know that we there, there are people that are going to be coming in that are going to be presenting that need to be evaluated. Yeah. Where's the fall down here? Is this something that is not funded enough by the government? Is there not? What I mean, where? Why? Why is there not anybody there? Did you ever? Did you ever get that <laughs> wonderful answer? Well, it, it's. I, I think uh, you know. For I, I don't want to speak for Lee Health. Uh, I can't speak for them. But I, I, you know, these are hospitals set up. Well, I'm to, sure that Lee Health checked with other hospitals in the area. It's not just them. I mean, yeah. there's. Uh, North Collier Hospital is a physician's regional. There's a lot of places to check out and nobody had anything. I think traditionally hospitals are set up to deal with injuries, injuries, physical injuries, yeah. um, heart attacks, heart like attacks, that. you know, car wrecks, things like that. And, you know, increasingly, I think they're, they're dealing with this as a mental health issue, but they just don't have, frankly, the staffing to deal with it. They don't have the psychiatrists on staff. You know, in, they don't have people in the in the ER 24 seven with mental health expertise that they can do that. And especially given the numbers of people who come in with a whole assortment of mental health issues, you know, children and adults. Um, We're talking thousands and thousands of people. 
Yeah, it was really surprising. What were some of the challenges that you had in trying to report this story? Was it hard for you to just find a person whose story to tell this through? I mean, what we have is a lot of data that indicates that there's an issue. But to make it resonate and to make it make sense for people, you have to have the person whose story you can tell. How important was it to have this young person open up to you? From my perspective, it was invaluable. We can't really tell the story without the people who are being impacted by it. And I think that was, for for me at least, that was the most difficult part is finding people um, willing and, and children willing to share their stories and parents who were willing to allow their children to share yeah. their stories. Um, you know, as a journalist, I don't like to ask people to do something that I wouldn't be comfortable doing as a parent. I'm a parent of two children. And I, I've thought about that a lot during the process. Like, would I be willing to share my child's mental health um, challenges? And, and I'm not totally sure. Yeah. But mm-hmm. their perspective, then you got to talk to them about what was their reaction when they discovered that the help just really wasn't there. Yeah. And that, that goes to why they essentially we found people to share their stories is that they were really, sh- really shocked. Did they and, feel and like frustrated. they were the only ones? that experienced that or were they they just you don't know until you're there right I think that's what they felt like this is kind of a little known thing that is happening to a lot of things a lot of people and 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 people should be more aware of it and hopefully more um know the steps to go through I know for like on the part of the mother she was she was really didn't know to how to even get her child help so mm-hmm. um she has talked to, to me about the need for more education for parents. Um, and that's essentially why she was willing to share her story. Yeah, yeah. it's really critical that she did. It should be noted, too, that the, the mother works in the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she's not, this is not a, healthcare industry is not a, some big mystery to her. But but in this case, this aspect of it, it, it definitely was. Well, I think it's really interesting that um, it seems like there's something going on. There's an increase in the amount of mental health issues that we're seeing for whatever reason. I can't obviously figure that out right here, right now. I mean, I'm not a sociologist, but I mean, there is a problem, but who was supposed to be ready to react to that? Because it seems like healthcare is broken bones and heart attacks, but mental health care, it just kind of, did it get ignored? Did it get kind of pushed to the curb? Like, yeah, we'll deal with that when we need to. Who is supposed to be there to pick it up and be ready for it when you have a crisis? I mean, when you have somebody that says they're going to kill themselves, that's what the Baker Act is for. Could you remind people a little bit about what the Baker Act is? Yeah, essentially, I mean, put Pretty simply, the Baker Act is 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 a provision of Florida law that allows for uh, a mental health evaluation, voluntary or involuntary, of a person who's considered an immediate risk to themselves or others. So, uh, someone who's say suicidal or maybe has made threats to harm others. Mm-hmm. And you go in, you get evaluated by a psychiatrist, and typically it's up to a seventy-two hour stay in a, uh, a crisis stabilization unit, is what they're called. So tell me a little bit about the numbers when it comes to the sharp increases that they're seeing when it comes to young people and things like anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts. What kind of numbers did you uncover when you were doing that? Yeah, well, what, what we saw in looking at the data, and this will be the subject of a, a, a future story as well, um, but what we saw going, and we looked back all the way to the early 2000s and um, year after year, I mean, there's it's been growing by leaps and bounds. And um, there, there was a state report put out in uh, late 2017 that took really kind of a deep dive in this issue. And it found that, I mean, like in Southwest Florida, I mean, the, the, the number of kids getting Baker Acted jumped by, you know, I think in Collier County was 170%. In Lee County, it was 100 and 
35% maybe, and in Charlotte County it was about 97%. All told, that's roughly several hundred kids a year, but I mean, that's a pretty sharp increase. And, yeah. Yeah. And we, we, Does anybody have any idea what's bringing this on? Is it awareness of mental health issues and willingness to say, okay, this is an issue? Or is it the always connected society, social media pressures, the inescapable socialization yeah, that's the $64,000 question. Yeah, I, I know. I, you know, um, we heard a lot of answers. I mean, it, it was all, all of the above was what we heard essentially that, yes, it's better awareness. It's, you know, it's we want to be proactive and kind of, you know, intercede when, when we, we, see, we see a problem. Um, on the other hand, you know, we also heard from people who think that, um, you know, it's a little bit of an overreaction that, you know, uh, in some cases, these are kids who maybe are acting out but are not necessarily suicidal or, or wanting to harm other people. So there's a real mix of opinions on this. Well, I mean, I could see maybe someone could accuse a parent of being too much of a helicopter parent and taking what is what could be concerned, considered normal teenage drama and, and believing that it's more than it is. I mean, how do they suss that out? As health, I guess that's where that evaluation comes in. Right. I mean, you sit down with a psychiatrist and you, you talk about it. Mm-hmm. On a hopeful note, I also think young people are more willing to reach out now for help. So they're they are they're asking for help more often. In this young woman's case, yes, there were indicators that there was a problem, but she reached out for help. Um, so I think they're this generation of young people are more are more aware and are and also more willing to 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 ask for help on their own. What did the teenagers that you talked with? What did they say? was the stressor or the pressure or what did they did they indicate in in any way what it is that's pushing them i think from um a few they talked about the academic pressures they felt a lot of um the young woman in the bell as well uh, talked about the pressure of just trying to get into a good college get good grades um so a lot of kids are taking a lot of classes and, and high stress classes and um, you know, stocking their schedules with extracurricular activities. To get scholarships, um, yeah, exactly. to be able to go to the great college. Mm-hmm. And then social media, too, is a factor in, in, in as well, like feeling bad about themselves, getting bullied on social media, getting bullied in school. Yeah, we heard a lot of that. Mm-hmm. That's... Yeah. If you're just joining the show today, I'm talking with News Press storyteller Janine Zeitlin and Frank Gluck. He is a healthcare watchdog reporter for the News Press. We're looking at the growing need for mental health services, particularly crisis intervention options for children in Southwest Florida. Their Mending Minds feature on this issue came out in yesterday's edition of the paper. If you'd like to add your voice to our conversation, give us a call now at 877-428-8255. That's 877-GCU-TALK. Now, earlier today, I caught up with a high school student named Anna Berry, who is the founder and program director of what's called the Student Alliance on Mental Illness, or SAMI. She's someone that you spoke with for this story, and uh, let's, let's have a listen to that conversation now. First, tell me, how did you get involved in wanting to be part of something like this? Um, I went to the political leadership camp called the Young Women's Political Leadership Program by Running Start uh, last summer at the beginning of June. And I never really considered beforehand that someone as young as me could have the opportunity to start their own organization. But I met people there, um, high school students who have started their, their, founded their own nonprofits or written their own books. And they were just taking these huge steps or interning for political campaigns or even um, employees on campaigns. And then I realized that 
I'm not limited by the opportunities like put directly in front of me. I can go out and search for them. And so I wanted to start an organization involving mental health, but I just didn't think I could. And so that kind of inspired me and I realized, oh, I can, I do have the ability to do that. And I ended up emailing Pamela Baker at NAMI saying my idea and she was very supportive of the idea and then told me to come in and meet with her. I believe, sometime in the middle of last July. So then it became the Student Alliance on Mental Illness. And that's, yeah. that's what you're the founder of. So why mental yeah. illness? Because I, I struggled with it personally. And I think the only reason that I was able to overcome my issues was because I am middle class. I had the resources and my parents believe that it's a problem. They don't deny it. And I have a lot of friends who, like people that are close to me, who struggle with mental illnesses, but their parents simply just don't believe in mental illness altogether or just don't see it as a priority because, and they think they could just ignore it and work on school instead. And it's because, because to a lot of people, if you can't see it, it's not there. And I think, I think that's one of the largest problems. So along with providing services, it's also about advocating and telling about mental illness and how it is a real thing and um, especially advocating against the stigma of it. So you're you're 16 now? Uh, yeah, I turned 17 in less than a month. So. In less than a month. Okay, well, happy pre-birthday. Yeah. Um, Thank you. But when, when did you, st- you said that you moved from Maine down to this area. Um, when did you encounter these struggles? Was that when you were still in Maine or when you came down here? No, it was down, it was down here. Okay, it kind of started in Maine. It started with, like, uh, body image issues, and then it kind of moved into more complex things because I, I was diagnosed with uh, depression, anxiety, bulimia, and OCD in my sophomore year, and the struggles kind of began in my freshman year. So the, the struggles got much worse at the end of my freshman year, even though I think the, the body image issues and eating disorder stuff probably started more seventh grade. When did you realize that what you were dealing with was more than generalized teen angst or just, you know, being that age and being stressed? When did you, when did it become apparent that what you were dealing with was bigger than average? I mean, I was pretty educated on mental illness beforehand. So when it, when it came, I I was, I I don't think I was in denial about it really. I, I kind of knew what it was. But when I was in that state, you don't want to ask for help. You, like you, you just you don't even want to deal with it. It's just there, and then you kind of just give up. And so finding help was the hardest thing. Like especially because I didn't want to go to my parents about it because it's such a vulnerable situation, and I just don't like discussing that type of things with them. Even though I know my mom would have been open to giving me therapy, but I just I was just not comfortable even going to her about it just because. I, it just felt too vulnerable and personal to me to bring up. And so I think that's one of the other reasons I started SAMI, because I don't want there to be any stress in coming forward. I want it, people to know that it's completely confidential and that they don't even need to go to their parents at all. And I, I found that really interesting in your bio on the Student Alliance on Mental Illness um, meet the board thing, you know. It said uh, yeah. a, a lot of peers, I've noticed, need mental health care but either couldn't get parental consent or couldn't afford treatment or maybe just don't even want to talk to the parents about it because for whatever reason. 
And then you learned of law yeah. number 394.4784 and the 2018 Florida statute saying that minors over 13 years old are allowed to receive therapy and diagnostic services without parental consent. That seems yeah. like such a David and Goliath thing, though. I'm thinking of somebody that's 13 and a half, 14. Do you, is part of what you do and your organization do showing kids how to navigate that? Because sometimes it's kind of hard to even know where to start. Yeah, definitely, because that's sort of the advocacy part of it, that we want to spread uh, the, the awareness of, oh, it's okay that you're going through this, you're not alone. And that's kind of why we hold events and we do the fundraisers um, to kind of work towards. And we have social media um, outlets that we're trying to build um, to try to be able to spread that awareness. I definitely want to be able to spread it to middle school so then we can get the younger students. And we have uh, transportation opportunities and access that we're working out because NAMI has some. And so we're thinking of just changing that slightly to fit SAMI. And also we were thinking of maybe giving other high school students volunteer hours if they drove students to therapy. Mm -hmm. I thought that would be a good way to involve it sounds like you have a lot of uh, great ideas, and I think it makes sense, yeah. though, coming from someone who's been there. Yeah. So your goal, your next goal is to take this national. Yes. I, I definitely want to provide more therapy and make more people in the community aware of the organization, um, because even though I publicize it a lot um, on social media, there are still tons of people at my school who don't know what it is. So I need to figure out a way to get it out more. But yeah, I definitely have big plans for it in terms of spreading it. I, I definitely th don't think that mental health care should be limited by your parents' belief for how much money you have. And Jenny, we were listening and we were kind of talking a little bit while that was playing. And about the biggest fear is as a parent, when the kid doesn't feel like they can talk to you about it. Mm -hmm. It is so frightening. Yeah, it's yeah terrifying. <laughs> I, just, mm -hmm. I just really hope that that never happens. But... It's good that there are things out there that they can actually access, but if there's really not a whole lot to access. And, is this, and another thing that we talked about a little bit is the difference between treating it as a social services issue as opposed to a medical issue. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be a divide. It looks like medical might be looking for social services to take care of these things, whereas in many cases, it's a medical issue that needs to be taken care of for, for people. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a gray area there in between, though. Well, it seems like a med it's a medical issue that's not really being treated like a medical issue, but rather a social services problem. And where there are issues, social service issues surrounding sometimes why people have mental illnesses, it really is a, a, a med medical issue. I mean, depression, anxiety, they're every bit as dangerous as, as uh, some sort of other quote-unquote physical illness. I mean, you have kids who are suicidal. I mean, that's it's it's pretty serious. Well, part of the issue, too, is when you're beginning with a, a seed of a thing, a seed of an issue like anxiety or depression, if that is not addressed, then those become crisis intervention moments. And those crisis intervention services, as you mentioned, they're just not prepared for in emergency rooms. But what is there? There are other private things like Salus Care, David Lawrence Center, and Charlotte Behavioral Health in Punta Gorda. Those are the crisis units, yeah. Those are it. That's all we have. Lo locally, yeah. Can can they handle what we have going on here as far as the number of people that are reporting? I mean, I think a lot of times they can. Uh, but 
frequently they're they're at or over capacity. I mean, I think they'll tell you that, and they've even you know expanded in recent years. But it's it really has not been enough. Um, you know, we've got several thousand kids maybe a year who who need this help locally here in Southwest Florida, and there's roughly 40 beds available in those pediatric crisis units mm-hmm. right now. So, you know, they're they're commonly going hours away to other other facilities because there's just nothing here. What's involved in crisis intervention? Is that where you have to stay for three days, you get your evaluation? Right. This is the, the Baker Act, essentially. Okay. And usually they give people medication at that time. So you get access to a, psychi- a prescriber more quickly than you could if, as if you were just going in for a typical counseling um, or psychiatric evaluation. It's, Non-crisis psychiatric health. It's elevation. kind of like yeah, mental health emergency care, yeah. essentially. I wonder what it's going to take to solve something like this, though. This is what I'm curious about. Is this something that's going to be requiring legislation coming forward? I'm not asking you to write the bill, <laughs> but I mean, I don't, I don't, what's going to urge the change? I mean, I think it's, a, well, I mean, this is something certainly that people are talking about here locally. I, I don't think the, med- the, the medical community is unaware of this problem. They, they talk oh, about Oh, yeah. The charities have been raising money. Yeah. We've seen so many charities, millions of dollars to help with mental health care for mm-hmm. kids. There's, I think there needs to be some kind of intermediary step between the, crisis center and the two-week wait for an appointment because when people need or longer I mean usually that's like your first intake if you're um, at a lot of places but you know if you want to see a psychiatrist we've heard of um, you know months several months four months to get a psychiatric appointment Um, but that depends on each provider. It's a tremendous amount of pressure mm-hmm. on the private side too, the private mental health service. I know that you talked with DNA therapy services for your story. How overwhelmed are they? I don't think they're overwhelmed because they're um, they've tried to hire a bunch of people and they have a because of the short shortage of um, psychiatrists, they have a program where they have a PA or nurses uh, come in and work with uh, um, be overseen by a psych- psychiatrist. They've had explosive growth, they told me, because of because they accept all insurances. Mm-hmm. So a lot of pediatricians are referring to them because of that. Well, in the, in the story, it says that there's been a, a nearly threefold increase in just the past two years when it comes to diagnosis of things like ADHD, anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and insomnia. So, And that's as reported from your story from the DNA therapy services. But you said that they exploded so that they can kind of handle it. But we also need to be clear, this isn't the crisis intervention. This no, is, this is just like when you go in for a typical appointment. But I, I'd say it's pretty important because mm-hmm. what happens is, you know, after you get this kind of emergency mental health care, you're, 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 you go home. And then, you know, it's kind of up to you to find a provider to kind of deal with that issue that, you know, you've, you've just kind of stepped down from. So, and, and often that doesn't happen. And so not uncommonly kids will be, will go through the Baker Act multiple times because mm-hmm. they're not they're not getting that, that that kind of intermediate level of care. That would be the only source of care they're getting. And yeah. I know like another state, I forget what state it was in, but they had some kind of um, it's like an urgent care center almost for mental health issues, which seems like a really good solution. It's like a step between waiting a few weeks for that appointment or more and going to a crisis stabilization unit, which can be a traumatic experience for kids and their families. Yeah, that was the other thing that came in the article, that if the sheriff's department transports a young person from the ER, for example, to one of these crisis stabilization units, they have to be in handcuffs? That's uh, Lee County Sheriff's Office policy, yeah. 
Oh, is, is it not the same in Collier? It varies from county to county. Yeah. A lot of jurisdictions, they kind of leave it up to the, the responding officer. It's, you know, you make your county own goes, make yeah. your own call. Um, but it, at least with Lee County, they told us that was their policy. Yeah, that would be traumatic mm-hmm. no matter what. Is there a place that you found in your research that is doing things that seems like they're doing things right, that they're prepared, that they have ways of coping? Is there a place in Florida or anywhere else in the country that you saw? Well, Naples is doing um, some interesting things with the wine festival money where they have um, partnered um, primary care providers and behavioral health care providers. So when you when a child goes to their pediatrician, they can get almost immediate access to a behavioral health care provider. So if your pediatrician flags you as a need, you can get hooked up with someone immediately versus like oftentimes it would work that a pediatrician would say, okay, now I need to refer you out. And that appointment could take a couple of weeks. So they're doing it in-house and in one visit, which is reaching kids um, through their pediatricians, which seems like a wise thing to do. I remember doing uh, the story when they were talking about initiating that process. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that that is a really interesting uh, angle and way to do things. You also told the story of a Clewiston girl who cut her wrist and when her parents found out, drove to Fort Myers, there was no space locally. Can you tell me a little bit more about her, the girl from Clewiston? This, this, the, the subject of our, our story, you mean. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This is, oh, that's the same person that yeah, was that's from. Yeah, the same person. Mm-hmm. I thought she was from LaBelle. She's from LaBelle. Oh, okay. I don't know where I got this close mm-hmm. in here. Uh, the numbers in your story focus really on Lee, Collier, and Charlotte counties. If it's bad here along the coast, it seems like it must be far worse inland. How are Hendry and Glades counties compared? Well, when I talk to child welfare experts, um, you know, rural counties have lack services. So a lot of people yeah. like that that young woman, she dri- her, her family drives in to Fort Myers for to go see a psychologist. Um, and from at least as of a few months ago, there was no freestanding mental health uh, clinic in the LaBelle area, so people would have to drive in to Fort Myers, or they they are trying to expand telehealth services in that area as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but rural areas are are underserved in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe it's going to be any any better when it comes to children's mental health. Um, so another number that you reported that really kind of surprised me, and I actually had to ask you before we went on the air, are you sure about this? And you, the behavioral health team at Lee Physician Group operated by Lee Health saw 1,088 patient visits in 2017. That number is projected to be nearly 12,000 this year? That's what they tell me. That's kind of an amazing number, isn't it? How do they project that? I mean, I guess they have their own formulas. Yeah, I mean, they. I think it's based on just growth, and you know, they kind of have to game this out. Um, it's it's a, it's an estimate, of course, um, but I mean, I think that speaks to the pent up demand that we've seen in the community. This similar with the case with you know Elite DNA. Mm-hmm. There's just so much demand for these services that have for many years gone unmet, and so now, uh, you know, as in Lee Health's case, it's a relatively new program. Elite DNA, relatively new business. Suddenly, these these avenues are opening up, and they're just being flooded by all these kids, frankly, who just never got this care. A lot of them before. And if parents are concerned, they have a child that or a teenager that's harming themselves or threatening to harm themselves. They take them to the ER. I can't imagine what that bill would be, and who covers <laughs> that? Is that something that Medicaid helps with at all? Well, I'd say most of the children treated in the ER, uh, at least within Lee Health, uh, are on uh, Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't remember the exact number, but it's it's a majority. Um, so the kids care. Yeah, I yeah. mean, so you know, if they're they're coming in with an injury or something that needs medical treatment, that's who's paying for it, basically. And what we found is Medicaid actually provides pretty good coverage for mental health services. A lot of times it's the private insurances that are sometimes more difficult for parents to get coverage um, for a full range of services. Yeah. And then there's some a new screening program called Vivita. Have you heard of this? Yeah. So this is part of uh, this is the Lee Health uh, initiative, right? They, they want to start screening some kids who are on their they they have a managed a Medicaid managed care plan, and so some kids who are in that program would get screening. And I and I think this is something that, again, I don't want to speak for them, but I, I think this is this this kind of early intervention screening is something that that they're going to be looking at uh, more and more in in the months ahead. Um, just. Kids come in. Let's ask them some basic questions to, to, to just kind of get a read on their on their mental health state. It's not a, necessarily a comprehensive exam, but it's let's look for see if there are any red flags. Let, let's look for red flags, basically. It makes sense because there are so many um, really some sometimes tragic cases where somebody just kind of falls through the cracks. Yeah. The, which just don't ask enough little questions, but having a standardized thing and maybe kind of also following the lead of the the Collier example that you were talking about, having behavioral health being partnered up with mm-hmm. primary care physicians. Well, and think about it. I mean, that's the best, I mean, the most common way for a kid to have access to mental health care or care in general is through their pediatrician. So yeah, because you got to go mm-hmm. at least once a year, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's a logical place to kind of start screening for that. Mm-hmm. I think there's also the idea that it reduces the stigma that you don't have to go someplace else that's a mental health um, facility versus like here's just you're just going to the doctor. Yeah, yeah. that mm-hmm. that does kind of help, and I think that um, there are also different cultural differences mm-hmm. of uh, groups that view mental health as not really an issue and. Some people just power through, and mm-hmm. then and, and the parents may not want to accept it or talk about it. But mm-hmm. if the physician's willing to do so, and and it doesn't feel like a different awkward drive and trying mm-hmm. to find a whole nother doctor, mm-hmm. right? So this is a series. This is part of a series. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this was first one was Sunday. What's next? We plan to look at funding issues next, and um, then we'll we'll do something on the Baker Act, lo- looking a little more specifically on on the kind of the sharp growth we've seen and the reasons. For it, and, and we've talked to a number of kids who have been Baker acted, and you know, for you know, it's turned out well for them. In some cases, some cases, it was not a great experience. Yeah, um, I think it'll be interesting too to see what happens going forward because um, I know that two Parkland survivors recently committed suicide and ended up drawing a lot of attention from Governor DeSantis, who called for more government action on mental health. And I'm wondering if if that will translate into something happening in the next next legislative session. We didn't see much on that this legislative session that I'm aware of, but it'll be interesting to see going forward if if that happens. So when do we expect to see the next uh, in a few months installment? <laughs> in a few months, I would say we're hoping that you know every few months we can get um, some additional stories out. Uh, we're both. Yeah, also working all the daily stories too, right? Yeah, we haven't had that meeting yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is one of those special projects. But what's it like working on, a, on an issue, on a story like this? I mean, this is kind of a big deal. I mean, it's it, important. Yeah, it's it can it can be difficult, you know. That's why it's nice to have hear stories of hope as well from some some of the young people because sometimes it can get depressing. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> 
All right, well, thanks for the good work. Uh, that is all the time that we have for this part of the show, but I want to thank my guest, Janine Zeitlin, a storyteller and staff writer for the News Press and USA Today Network. Janine, it's so great to see you once again. Thank you for having me. And Frank Gluck, it's a healthcare watchdog reporter for the paper. Frank, thanks to you as well. Thank you. And I also want to thank 16-year-old Anna Berry, who we talked with earlier in the show. She's the founder and program director of the Student Alliance on Mental Illness, or SAMI. You can find a link to Janine and Frank's recent feature on the need for more mental health services for children in Southwest Florida on our website, gulfcoastlive.org. When we return, we're listening back to a conversation we had earlier this year with the owners of a restaurant in Estero that serves meals, one of the owners discovered during his time as a foster child. I'm Julie Glenn. You're listening to Gulf Coast Live. Stay with us. 